Well, thanks so much, Julian, for, for joining me, my man. I love all the stuff that you're working on. And uh, I'm excited that we finally get to, to get to have this conversation. So just to get started, like, tell everybody your background and kind of all the things you have your hand in right now. And then we'll, we'll get started on a, on a lot of different uh, conversation topics that we want to rock and roll with. Sounds good, Grant. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And um, I honestly wish I had more hands to dip things into, but <laughs> the things I currently you have. You and my me hands, both, buddy. <laughs> the whole universe, but it's okay. We'll we'll get clones and virtual clones and everything else soon. <laughs> yeah, so I am a 24-year-old entrepreneur, software engineer, and podcaster. To start off, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. And currently, I'm the co-founder and CTO at Vise, which is short for Incentivizing Good. We can talk about that more, but our it's an early stage startup where our purpose and mission is to help low-income workers find a job that they love and empower them to advance in their professional lives. And then I'm also a software engineer. I uh, will start working at Facebook as a software engineer in late June, so in about two months from now. And I... I'm also a podcaster. I didn't feel like I was busy enough. So three months ago, I decided to launch an entrepreneurship podcast named Inventing the Future, where my mission there is to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs and empower them to solve the world's biggest problems, because the world's biggest problems are the world's biggest opportunities. And uh, I think there are opportunities for growth, for impact, and for wealth. And the greater the impact you have, the greater the fulfillment you have. So really, I just want to create a, a tool and a platform and a resource for uh, aspiring or new entrepreneurs to be able to uh, elevate their knowledge and entrepreneurship to the next level and see how other young entrepreneurs are taking their ideas and solving problems on a massive scale. And yeah, other than that, I'm a productivity aficionado. I love personal development. I'm a junkie in that field and I just love learning and doing so many things. Uh, and I'm always trying to figure out how to manage my time and my life better. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, I love the idea of Vise. And let, let's get into a bit of a detailed overview of, of what Vise is. Um, and, and, you know, on your podcast that I listened to earlier today, you said it's it's sort of the glass door for low skilled workers. And I thought it was just, you know, it was just a great idea in, in general, right? But obviously, ideas come and go, right? Like the wind. Uh, but actually uh, sticking with it and building the idea is uh, super amazing. So so where was the sort of aha moment in, in building Vise? Absolutely. Yeah. So as you mentioned, Vise is uh, initially a glass door for developing countries. And I say that because Glassdoor focuses more on higher skilled professionals, while we're focusing more on low skilled workers, like factory workers. And the CEO came up with this idea when he lived in China abroad for eight months. And he noticed that there was a problem there around factory workers not knowing like what jobs were good, which were bad, which ones would treat you well, which were had bad working conditions. Right. And there tended to be a lot of abuse and not enough transparency to actually know where to work, which just led to frustration and almost like a complacency of mediocre conditions. So the CEO decided it would be great to do that in um, in Mexico. And that's what that's what we're doing. And so we're primarily right now we're focused on helping low skilled factory workers in Tijuana, Mexico, improve working conditions and find better jobs. And to take a quick step back, our overall mission, as I mentioned, is to help these low income workers 
find a job that they love, right? And empower them in the long term to advance in their professional lives through education and training. So right now, these low-skilled uh, factory workers are often overworked. They get they they have to work in unsanitary or unsafe working conditions, and they often get abused in many other ways, such as being made false promises on social security and health insurance prior to employment that's never actually fulfilled. Uh, so factories basically have every incentive to cut corners because of the demands from buyers and consumers overseas. And the workers, the factory workers, are the ones kind of like at the very end getting the worst of it. So the idea is to create transparency into the working conditions by enabling factory workers to uh, share their work experiences anonymously so that they can make better informed decisions about where to work that will give the incentive factories need to improve working conditions and there's also a problem on the factory side here where many factories have insanely high turnover rates of around 90 to 100 percent of their workforce every year so they're spending massive amounts of money on recruiting and training uh, workers and because they're so focused on short short-term gains uh, and they are not very data driven uh, they're not really aware of the amount of money that's being lost in the long term by not actually treating these workers with respect improving conditions to improve retainment uh, and therefore drive growth so it's a two-sided market with massive massive problems and it's not just a problem in Tijuana or in Mexico, it's a global problem because two thirds of the working population in the world makes less than $10 a day. Mm-hmm. And so that's like literally billions of low income workers around the day that are suffering almost on a daily basis for something that's as fundamental to their livelihood as a job. And I like the idea that it benefits both parties, the worker and the company and sort of what transparency does uh, when, when it's done really well. Because at the end of the day, I mean, that's going to save time and money for these companies not having a massive turnover rate. I mean, that is just insane. And is that mostly through, I guess, through the research that you guys have done, is that just due to different jobs opening up that get paid more? And, or is it just working conditions? Or is it, I guess it's a, it's a a plethora of things, but to be so high, right? You would think that as an organization or as a company, you'd have to say, why is it so high? We could do better. Or they just don't care, right? Because they just have so many people that need jobs in that area that they'll just always have people come in the door looking for jobs, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So it, one problem is that they're just like not very data driven. So they may not be fully aware of to the extent. The second problem is that they recognize that these low skilled workers are dispensable. And like, if they get rid of one, they can get others. What they fail to take into account is like the cost and time it takes to find workers and hire them and train them. Um, so there is a lot of workers that they can get if someone leaves or something, but it's, it's more so about creating an environment where they want to stay so that they can advance, progress, and save money on uh, recruiting and training. And the problem really is that because working conditions tend to be pretty bad at most factories, the primary decision-making tool that most factory workers use is how much they're getting paid. So if another factory across town or across the street offers them like five or 10 pesos more, uh, something minimal, then they might likely leave for, you know, just a few more pesos. And the thing is like our assumption, our hypothesis is that if they knew what it was like to work at different factories, 
they would be more willing to either take a little less pay if they knew that the conditions would be significantly better. So that's kind of the hypothesis we're, we're banking on, where it's not just they make decisions based on how much they pay because they don't really have much information right. about how what it's like to work there unless they have a friend or family member that's referred to them and not everyone has that uh, benefit or opportunity. How are you getting, I guess, the word out that something like this exists? It is a challenge, yeah. We do have a team of six people, three engineers, including myself, then the CEO, and two people on the marketing team that live in Tijuana. So okay. we at least have two people there. Great. And that's been immensely valuable and necessary. There is a lot of uh, challenges working in a different country, especially like as an entrepreneur, one of the things you have to be very mindful of is the assumptions that you're making uh, and making sure you don't blindly operate on assumptions that haven't been validated. And it's really easy to make incorrect assumptions if you're working in a different country that you're not as familiar with. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. try to keep that top of mind and having two people there that can validate assumptions to an extent is really helpful. But yeah, apart from that, how do they write reviews? So they do this on their phone through mm -hmm. um, the website that we have. You may ask like, what? These people have mobile phones? Oh yeah. Well, fortunately, <laughs> like phones uh, have become more of a necessity than a luxury. So yeah. even though these are low income workers, upwards of 80% of them actually have mobile phones. And that's what makes our idea possible today. Yep. We tried to do this uh, three, four, five years ago. Uh, it wouldn't work because smartphone penetration is not where it needed to be to have a significant impact. But it's, it's incredibly high, especially for low-income people. And it's, it continues to increase, especially because right now there's about 4 billion people with internet access uh, out of like the almost 8 billion that we have. And in the next five years, it's predicted that the rest of the 4 billion people that are unconnected will become connected. So this Crazy. is like a trend in adoption that we're banking on to help uh, reach more people and what makes this and many solutions possible. What was it about Tijuana that you guys chose for sort of to be the first sort of city and sort of case study for, for the platform? Yeah, several things. So firstly, it's in Mexico, which is right next to the U.S. Secondly, Tijuana is right next to San Diego, so even closer to the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, third is that they speak Spanish, which uh, I know how to speak Spanish. I'm Colombian myself. And fourth is that uh, Tijuana has a huge industrial mm. um, industrial industry. So they have over 2,000 factories in Tijuana with over 300,000 factory workers. Wow. So a huge market in one city uh, so it's proximity language and just a really big market to help us get a strong footing and, what do uh, they make what are they making do you want all sorts of things you mm -hmm. have companies like samsung making tvs and a lot of electronics mm -hmm. uh, you have foxconn making a lot of devices there's medical device companies tijuana was actually really essential in producing medical devices during COVID times hmm. all sorts of things plastics aerospace and there's factories from the US, from Mexico, from Korea, from China, all over the place. Uh, it's really become like an industrial manufacturing hub. Interesting. So let's talk a little bit about building it, right? We go from, you know, having having an idea and, you know, does, does Bryce, the CEO, come to you and say, hey, I have this idea. Are you guys talking while he's in, in China and he kind of has this idea there? Or when he comes back and he's just like, I want to build this. How do we do that? 
<laughs> yep. So <laughs> the way I found out about this was because uh, I'm an engineer and as an engineer, as a computer scientist, people will reach out to you all the time with ideas. And so, <laughs> and so I uh, made a really good friend one of, uh, with one of my computer science professors and Bryce did something really smart, which I would suggest to people at colleges to do, is he reached out to a lot of the professors at my university for computer science and yeah. asked them if they had any students they would recommend for this idea he had. Mm. So Great one, idea. Bryce did something really smart in reaching out to computer science professors. And two, I was smart enough to develop a good relationship with one of my computer science professors. And that made the connection possible. And Bryce just had this idea. We were in college. He pitched it, you know, like, um, we're going to help improve working conditions. And like when he was telling me this, I'm like, oh my God, this is like massive. Like this is a huge opportunity, yeah, which was is. exciting, but yeah. it was also intimidating. I was like, oh shit. Like the probability of success of this is like so minimal. <laughs> like this is such a bold thing to try to do. But I thought like, okay, well, I, even if we don't manage to succeed because the probability of success is really low uh, and it still is, even if we don't succeed, the potential for impact if it does work and the mm -hmm. growth opportunity for what I can learn starting something from scratch right. and being able to leave the engineering team, which I told Bryce like, hey, I'll join, but only if you let me leave the engineers as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, I optimized for learning and growth and did something that was impactful because that makes it harder to give up when, mm, great when point. It, and yeah, so that's, that's kind of how it sprung it's up from that. So how did you go into building it? Let, let's take a look at, at sort of the tech stack and, and what sort of Vise is built on. And I guess what was your what was your thinking going into it and strategy of, of building the tech stack? Because it's such an important step for any startup because it's really hard to disassociate yourself from the tech stack after you sort of built it and your company's sort of running on it. It's it's really hard to pivot then to something else. It's, maybe not be hard, but it's just frustrating. It's just like, uh, it's something you just don't want to do. Definitely. No, it's, it's a difficult thing to determine because there are a lot of options and approaches and, and different services and technologies you can use. But the way we thought about it is like, first, like we wanted to get an idea, like, okay, how are we going to start this and what features do we want? So we, for the first question is like, do we want to do mobile first or web first? And we ended up deciding to go with uh, web first, just because it, we could also build like a mobile web version of it. And, and having like a web version is, is a good first impression that, that can help uh, us do that. However, we didn't want the process of building the mobile app to be super time consuming or almost build something entirely new. So right. we ended up picking a, a framework by Facebook called React. And React um, is a, a framework for the front end, basically for designing what the website looks like. And it makes it a lot easier, right? Um, the, the core thing about React is that you have components that you can reuse. So it's kind of like if you're building a house, instead of trying to design a door from scratch, you can use components of doors that other people have already designed. And you can just use that and borrow it and it saves you countless amounts of time because you can just you have building blocks that you can start with instead of having to build those things from scratch so we use react because it's really popular and because it would save us a lot of time and we also use react because uh there's also something called react native which is uh kind of the mobile version of react 
And even though it is uh, a little different and you have to build it separately, uh, the kind of structure of how you build React Native and the way that it connects with your backend is fairly similar. And additionally, uh, if you build something on React Native, it's available for both Android and iOS for iPhones. So you don't need to have two development teams or two different code bases for both Android and iOS. So we kind of strategically plan that based on what would save us uh, the most time and uh, what would be easiest to transition into mobile and make it available for both Android and iOS. And one, one final thing I'll, I'll touch on here is we, we know there's also like uh, no code options. You know, we could have used WordPress, Webflow or other things. Um, but I think for the features that we wanted and the specifications of being able to uh, have accounts, write reviews, have mm -hmm. comments, make sure we manage all of that in the database. Right. Uh, we really wanted a lot of flexibility. Uh, I say more so in the long-term scope uh, of what we wanted to do. And uh, we didn't look too into it, but we didn't think at the time with the no-code solutions that it would be able to adjust. And maybe it would, maybe no-code would have worked for us in the short term. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it could have been good for like a potential MVP. Yep. But, um, but in terms of where we wanted to be long-term and where we wanted to go and the flexibility we needed, uh, I think uh, having an actual code coding tech stack would be what's best for us. And we didn't want to be rebuilding things as well. And so users are creating accounts, right? So to make a review, they have to create an account or can they do it without creating accounts? Yeah, they have to create an account to write a review. And part of the reason we do that is just uh, for validity and credibility, mm -hmm. right? We can run uh, all sorts of things like validate with Facebook, authenticate with Facebook, uh, authenticate your account with a phone number. And this is all attached to your account. And you can also see how many uh, in the future, like well, how many reviews they've written. Uh, there's a big problem around uh, what the authenticity of the reviews. And we have a lot of ideas on how to help build credibility and accounts are a necessary thing for that. Yeah, because I'm imagining that the factories could just like pay somebody to write reviews, yep. right? Like it's it's sort of this, this old time. It kind of happens with any review system, right? Like there, yeah. there's there's a chance that transparency can be sort of manipulated a little bit. But I guess it's sort of inevitable. It's it's kind of hard to it's hard to deal with early on, right? I think once you get to a point where people have to do that, that's a good thing because that means your 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 platform is growing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I was gonna say that uh, it's a good problem to have because factories would only write fake reviews if they're actually impactful. <laughs> um, so that's a good sign. But we do. We do have approaches uh, to deal with that. One is just like the more reviews you have, that kind of drowns out the negative reviews or the fake reviews, right. uh, given that most of them are not fake. Uh, second is like you can have authentication ways of uh, validating your account with Facebook or with your phone number to build more credibility. Uh, the third is that you have crowdsourcing. So if people think that this review is fake or not helpful, they can downvote it and that can hurt it credibility and then the finally the fourth one is that we can uh, create fingerprint solutions to one limit uh, the amount of reviews that someone can write per account and almost also potentially we haven't explored this but create like a geographic fingerprint into that person and their device to make sure that they're not creating different accounts uh, to write multiple reviews. There's, there's more, there's a lot of ways to approach it, but it doesn't completely solve the problem. And I don't think anyone's completely solved the problem of fake reviews. Sure, sure. 
what's been the the reaction from from the workers you know i know it's it, it's sort of early stages here but what are some of the some feedback that you've gotten from from users yeah so um one big milestone we reached is that we managed to get over three thousand reviews on the platform wow which that's great pretty huge for us yeah and um i mean the great thing about this is that it more than validated uh the problem right because not all of them, but a pretty good amount of reviews talked about uh, how poor the working conditions were, uh, how people feel disrespected or mistreated, how some companies didn't even offer basic protective equipment. And there's like stories of factories, like people like losing their hand or almost getting crushed by machines because of lack of safe safety procedures or equipment so yeah more than validated our problem and um we're currently in the works of getting factories on board so that we can have jobs on the website and we can therefore begin to connect what it's like to work at a factory with the actual job opportunity so we've we've uh we've had like positive and negative reviews on the platform from workers, which has been really helpful. And uh, a few workers have told us that the reviews are, are really helpful in making better decisions. Uh, but I think the big leap, the quantum leap for us will be once we can connect uh, job opportunities to the actual reviews and what it's like to work there. I think that's that's huge because that I think that would be the hardest part I would imagine is getting the companies involved. You'd have to have that that their buy-in to obviously have a sort of job board system in place. Has has it been difficult getting in touch with them, right? To even talk about something like this? Definitely, yeah, no, it's been yeah. <laughs> uh, a massive challenge. And um, there's several things here that makes it challenging. One uh, is that they don't know us and therefore they don't trust us and we don't have any other factories on the platform. So we also don't have any credibility. And so, when it, we've we've called them, uh, done a lot of cold calls, emails, and for the most part, uh, we get like some interest, but nothing fully on board. Uh, so that's the current challenge we're working on. But yeah, so these factories, like they they don't have trust, and therefore they're skeptical. Uh, two, uh, the factories are also kind of like they you they stick to the status quo for the most part, so they're not as willing to be innovative and try new and unproven solutions. Uh, because, you know, they're like, oh, well, what we have already worked. Why would we want anything new? That's another thing. And the other problem could be, um, you know, the reviews and the transparency, but we're not including that as part of the pitch and what we tell them. Um, but when that does become like more of our pitch, then our focus would be more so on factories that do treat their workers well, right? Because if right. a factory treats their workers poorly, they're not going to want to be on the platform. They'll, yep. they'll have a negative effect. If they do treat their workers well, they're going to have a lot more workers that are interested in them. So that's where we'd start off from. And unfortunately, it's a smaller market. But um, if we can get people to be interested initially in these reviews and people are making decisions based on these reviews, then that will get the other factories on board in the long term. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is that we mentioned Foxconn and like Samsung and sort of these you know, massive, massive companies. Is there smaller manufacturers there that maybe you go after them first to try to get them involved? Because it just, again, 
one of the hardest things to do with all this stuff is just getting in touch with somebody, right? That is like, that, yeah. that could say yes or no, or even get you in touch with a person that could say yes or no. Uh, so have you tried to, is there even smaller manufacturers there that that, that route can be taken? Yeah, there is smaller manufacturers and an interesting challenge we had with the smaller manufacturers. And, and honestly, we've had a big challenge with COVID as well, um, because not a lot of people are hiring or Sure. just sticking to their current solutions. But the problem we notice with smaller manufacturers is that they tell us like, oh, we only have like one vacancy or one job or whatever. And it made us think like our original business model was to charge a monthly subscription to post like however many jobs they wanted. But we realized that that business model primarily works or is beneficial to big companies that have a lot of jobs to post and need a lot of people. If you're a small company with only like a few vacancies every right. month, then like you don't really need uh, a monthly subscription with all these job posts. So we change our business model uh, to something much more dynamic, uh, where now factories pay uh, five pesos for every job application they re receive. That's about like 15, mm. 20 cents for every job application. That way they only pay for results, which mm -hmm. is the job applications. And they only pay for what they need, right? They can post as many jobs as they want and get as many job applications as they want, but they can cut it out at any point and they only pay for the job applications. And we've noticed that we've been getting a lot more interest with smaller companies with that business model. So yeah, it's a, it was an interesting shift and something that's uh, been starting to work more recently or just gain more interest and, and solve that rejection. So, so that's what it is. You pitch, you pitch your idea continuously, your service, your benefits, and based on the rejections, it gives you an opportunity to reflect on what could solve this sort of rejection. Why are they rejecting us? And that's how we came up for the idea with this business model, which I think will be a lot more successful. We, uh, I want to go, no, I, I love that. I, I love that idea. I think it's, it's almost like uh, paying per click rather than paying for like impressions. You know, the, the click is just, it's, you'd rather have that than like impressions are so, they're kind of in the ether, right? They're a little bit not very transparent, right? You can kind of fudge those, those numbers a little bit with impressions. Uh, but clicks is, I think is, is sort of the parallel to like an application submitted. Like, I think it's, it's much more tangible. And I think people would rather pay for that. Yeah. And just, just think about, for example, like there's so many monthly subscriptions nowadays yeah, and totally. many times I'm sure everyone has been like, Oh my God, I'm only going to use this like once a month. I don't want to pay for this monthly subscription or, Oh my God, I'm only going to use this like once. And so those monthly subscriptions don't work for people that aren't going to have a high use case. If you're getting Spotify and listening to music like every day, yeah, the monthly subscription works great. But if you're only listening to one song a month, you don't want to pay a monthly subscription. Yep. Um, but yep. Spotify also has a free plan. So I think a lot of people don't consider what their business plan should actually be and what the needs of the users are and how they could be dynamic. Uh, you shouldn't have a monthly subscription just because that's what everyone else is doing. You should really consider what it should be for your business, depending on the needs of your customers and users. I want to go back to the technical side for, for a second and uh, we'll sort of, we'll kind of wrap it up up here, but like, what are some of the, what are some of the hurdles that you're facing now that, you know, the platform's growing, like you got users using it. It's great. Like, what are some of the things popping up that from a technical side, you know, you have to deal with working on this stuff? From a tech point of view, give an idea of what it's like, like day to day or week to week of like the tech sort of issues that you have to tackle as you scale, as things break and you have to fix stuff and all this, all the drama. 
Yeah, for sure. So I think one of the biggest problems that you deal with as an engineer, making the wrong decision on a library or service or technology to use that one. And actually a second one is technical debt. And technical debt is a term where basically like your code isn't very well written or you do things in a hacky way instead of like in a effective or systematic way. And therefore it's called technical debt because you have to pay it off in the future. Like it makes your code harder to work with, uh, harder to find, harder to understand or harder to use. Uh, And so it takes more time. So you you have this debt accumulating. And I think um, in the beginning, uh, we were both uh, not very well experienced and we were also fully optimizing just for something that's working instead of something that's good, which I think is fine in some ways. But uh, the problem is that a lot of that debt is now having to be paid off now. And we're having to do uh, refactoring, which basically means that you're improving the quality of the code, like rewriting it so that it's more high quality and it works better. Um, so that that's a big issue. And I would say there that it's worth it to take the time to spend more time learning in the beginning to learn about how to do things the right way uh, instead of just like learning a little bit or almost nothing at all and just diving into it. Like, I think that's the best way to learn, just diving into it. But like, if you're acting and doing things without uh, good principles in mind or without using uh, the libraries that would be best for you, it's, it's going to come to bite you in the, in the ass. Uh, so basically learning is a long-term investment. And I wish I would have taken more time to learn in the beginning instead of just operating and doing things based on the little knowledge that I had acquired to that point. With sort of the, the React components, would you, would you recommend, because I, I believe there's like free sort of libraries, right? And there's probably paid ones. Are, are the paid ones much more cleaner to where you wouldn't have that technical debt if you sort of invested early on sort of paid components versus maybe using free libraries? Yeah. So um, there is I, all, all React components, I think, uh, or mostly all of them are free. What mm-hmm. is paid is the templates that uh, people mm-hmm. build. So people build React templates of like fully fledged websites on React. And actually, like, I didn't discover that until after I started working with this. <laughs> and I feel like it would have been actually a really good investment because yeah, there's people sure. that spend a ton of time building really high quality templates. It's kind of like if you go to WordPress and you look at all the templates, yeah. like, yeah, that saves you so much time. It's the same thing, but for React with code that's Amazing. already neatly organized yeah. and structured that you can build on top of. So I would definitely recommend that. And I wish we would have uh, looked deeper <laughs> into that. Awesome, my man. Well, I think the last question I'll have is you're about to take obviously a huge leap you're about to move to Silicon Valley and and go work for Facebook and there's obviously going to be you know a a crazy journey there but maybe over the next year or so like what are you excited about whether it's with Vise or the new journey uh with Facebook like you know what are some of the the goals you have maybe for yourself for the for the next year there's a there's a lot but um I think I'd condense it down into two or three uh the first is just to connect with and learn as much as I can at Facebook I want to become a god of logic and really build my technical competency Uh, even though I don't plan to code in the long term I think it's really like coding is a modern day superpower totally. uh, and I want to be Superman with coding abilities. So that, that's my primary goal at Facebook as well as like, there's some of the most brilliant people there and working there in the world. So networking is huge. Uh, the second goal, and I say like the most important for me is to see Vise take off. Uh, we've been here for 
three years and three months or four months. And it's been a tough journey, but a meaningful and one filled with a lot of growth. And my biggest goal in the next year is to get to a point where we're building a viable business and we have streams of revenue that will validate our business model, our idea, our potential, and gather the um, investment interest that we need in order for me to make the full leap to device. Yeah. And I'd say third and finally is just to learn as much as I possibly can, because the younger I am, the more important it is to learn, because I'll have more time to actually make use of all of that learning. Um, so I'm very growth driven, very learning driven. And that's always a goal and a core for me for anything that I do. And so yeah, keep on it going onward and upward, both <laughs> mentally and physically. Amazing, my man. Well, I, I appreciate you taking the time. It's been a blast to, to learn about all the things you're, you're doing. And, and man, it's just, uh, it, it's great to see like, young amazing people like being optimistic about the future right and all the flaws that we have in the world right now <laughs> you know building building platforms and products you know for people who who can't do it themselves i think is the new philanthropy in a way you know i it think is. it's uh it, it's a it's a great it's a great mission my man so uh keep up the grind man and keep learning every day Definitely always will. And one final note I'll end on is the, there's so many problems and flaws in today's world, but always see problems as opportunities because that's what creates a space of possibility and energy to actually fix those things. And what drives me is the fact that there's problems that I can actually work towards to solve. And if you don't believe the future is optimistic, you're not going to want to do anything uh, to guarantee a better future for yourself and all of humanity. So even though there's a lot of fucked up shit in the world, just by being optimistic and knowing where things are going and how technology will improve our lives and how you can use those technologies to invent the future. Yeah, that empowers you and fulfills you on a deeper and more profound level.